0: hello and welcome back to a freshly contracted episode of hollywood chop shop we are your cinema mechanics brett Mosier and travis santana today we'll be reviewing 1966's the professionals but before we do let's go ahead and check in on the shop Great service, but the Hispanic guy was a little friendly with my wife. Two stars? What the fuck? My car runs better than ever, but Travis seemed more interested in asking me out on a date. Creepy one star. Son of a fucking bitch. Jesus, amigo, you have to... You know, I really should just leave you here.
1: <laughs> ah, Jesus Christ. Oh, thanks. Oh, thanks, amigo. You'll never believe oh, 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 how oh. this happened. Oh, I,
0: I, I can guess. I can guess. Your love of 100-proof women got here and, and got all these terrible Yelp reviews.
1: Well, I mean, of course, I love 100-proof women. That's kind of the start of my epitaph.
0: If I cut you loose can can you get this under control so we can try and you know boost up our rating
1: you know I'm, i might say yes now and no later
0: mm-hmm. yeah well, forget it i'm i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go ahead and go no 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 please yeah. let me yeah. go, let me yeah. go. Yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and go and just i'm, I'm just gonna go ahead and, and, and review 1966 the professionals A wealthy Texan, JW Grant, receives a ransom note after his wife disappears into the treacherous Mexican wilderness. Fearing the worst, Grant contracts four men with varying skills to retrieve his love from the clutches of a ruthless bandit leader, Raza. As the party traverses the harsh terrain, they can't help but feel something is out of place, and not everything is as it seems. Will they succeed in their endeavor, or find themselves in the cemetery of nameless men? Alrighty, Travis. Uh, normally, I would just jump right in to it and, and ask you your, your quick diagnostic. But you know, we've we've established on a previous episode that that you hate old movies. Um, and I, I picked this one out specifically because of Jack Palance. I realized after, funny enough, I realized I forgot why we did this trilogy, The Professionals, until I watched this movie because it was the last one we did. And when his name came up in the credits, I was like, Oh, fuck! Jack Palance is in this movie. <laughs> but um, we uh, we started the song.
1: Well, first uh-huh. of all, let me just say, I thought you just picked it to torture me, so I'm glad there was at least a Jack Palance connection.
0: Well, so th- that was the Jack Palance connection. I, you know, not to tip my hand, legitimately do really enjoy this movie, and I was hoping that I c- I could somehow, I could break this this chain of hatred for for old movies for you. Um, so before we get too far into it, and, and you give me because we have not talked at all um, after after watching the movie. Um, a little background to the audience, um, and maybe I'll let you try and explain this better than I can, but for the most part, Travis, you believe that movies really didn't get good or worth watching to the for the most part until about 1975 when Jaws came out, which ironically, not sure if you knew this or not, is actually the first movie to be labeled a blockbuster. Before that, the term did not really exist. So is we're talking about, you know, we labeled this a blockbuster when we get to Chop Shop and all that. It's interesting because technically blockbusters did not exist until 1975, so I don't know if you want to give a little bit of history as to why you believe nothing matters before Jaws. Um, I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing to, as, to look at before we really jump into this.
1: Well, I, I did know that Jaws was technically the first blockbuster And if I had to put a pin in the reason, well, I guess two reasons, obviously the shark is first and foremost, even though it doesn't get used that much, but it's the pacing, it's the character. Um, Modern blockbusters, I think, have lost this to an extent, but Jaws makes you care about three characters and fear the shark, and it's efficient, and pre-Jaws, I just feel like everything is plodding and the dialogue is stiff and wooden. Um, so that's why anything, if I see 74 and in, in prior, it's an instant no for me. I, I would never have watched this movie if not for this podcast.
0: All right, so with that said, quick diagnostic, what did you think of the movie? <sighs>
1: I I was in shock watching it. At a certain point, I just looked at myself in the mirror and said, This isn't bad.
0: <laughs> okay, I will take that as a win. I will take that as a win that you, because <laughs> I remember loving, I will say this, I, I do, I love this movie. I have a little bit of a um, kind of a nostalgia attachment because I watched it with my dad. But even going back and re watching this movie, I'm like, there's actually some really fun dialogue. And we say this preference for a movie from 1966, like there's a lot of really it has one of my favorite movie lines of all time, which I will wait. I'm, I'm not sure if you know what it is or not, but I just thought there's a lot of really good dialogue. Um, but yes, I just I'm glad to hear that it, at least you you enjoyed it a little bit.
1: Yeah, it, it felt a lot more modern than I expected. Um, so I think maybe that can segue into one of our five-point inspection topics, can't it?
0: Yeah. So we'll go ahead and give the audience our five-point inspection. So these are the five subjects we really wanted to, you know, we might hit on some other things, but these are the five things we really wanted to make sure we covered and talked about uh, in the review aspect of the episode. So um, we dubbed them as the first one being then and now. The next one being rule of thirds. Our third subject is an adventure with no principles. Fourth point is lean team and our fifth point is progressive subtext so we intentionally made those a little cryptic so that you couldn't guess what we were going to talk about but um do we want to kind of go into uh, then and now
1: so yeah i talked about how jaws felt like the first modern movie with pacing character dialogue this while not to the Jaws quality, I often found myself laughing at lines and thinking lines were witty. And even some of them, even if somebody said it today, I would at least chuckle. Uh, so that's a big credit to this movie. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it felt like something you would see in the theater today until you see the action scenes, of course.
0: Yeah, that is that is definitely where I think probably the movie is going to fall the worst for most people is if you expect anything from like even you know modern even I think if you go practical effects from like the 80s and 90s like the 60s still just didn't have it I mean it is some of the timing of the explosions isn't quite right they might have you know tried to fix that and remasters of it and stuff like that but at the end of the day there just was not the technology um whether we're talking again practical effects or you know digital effects to make action sequences actually look engaging a lot of it is kind of like a trick from the camera or like it's just out of angle to where like you don't really see anything it's more like if someone gets shot they fall and then the next scene they get up and they're bleeding because you can't do any kind of like you can't make it look like they were actually shot
1: yeah squibs didn't exist yet yeah um but all that being said i Another interesting thing to me to compare it to modern blockbusters, when I go see something like Transformers, you know, pick your number, or Fast and Furious, pick your number, I go in with an expectation of let me enjoy these action set pieces and hope they deliver something I've never seen on film before. And then when we get to the character moments, I'll just roll my eyes and just wait for the next action scene. And directors, modern directors know that because you can never go more than 12 minutes in an action movie these days without an action scene. It, it's interesting to contrast that with this movie. I kind of was rolling my eyes at the action, <laughs> but the characters and the script and the, just the dynamics between the characters was so strong that's what I was compelled by. Like, when the action scenes came, I was kind of just, let me get back to more character. And I was shocked by that.
0: Absolutely. Like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, I, I don't want to break the the flow of what we were planning on doing here, but we might wind up doing Rule Thirds last because I think we're just a natural transition into kind of, you know, an, an adventure with no principles and, and a lean team because I tell you what, I, I absolutely love Burt Lancaster's character in this movie, Dolworth. I just, I just, I think it's a great because It's the 1960s, uh, 66, so I think we're coming off of the heels of a lot of, like, these very, like, prudish... Um, you know, you have to be like an upstanding hero type character, like John Wayne westerns. Um, and I don't know if this is basically in a you know a, an attack on that or people trying to get away from that. But all of our our quote unquote heroes are not. I'm not going to say they're bad people, but they're definitely kind of morally gray. Like the movie starts off very quickly, assembles the team. Like we don't need a bunch of background or bullshit. Basically, it's a it's a three minute montage that shows you who your main characters are going to be. You have. Um, what is it Rico who is a machine gun specialist who's also like a military guy in the leader you have Jake who is a bounty hunter who, who is getting his money from bringing in a Native American you have the horse wrangler who goes and beats up his own like employees because he doesn't think that they're doing the job right and then Dolworth his first scene in the entire movie is basically him trying to escape a um a bedroom because he's sleeping with someone else's wife. Like these are your heroes. Like they're we've already established that they're not like these morally like, you know, uh the compass points north type characters and I absolutely love it because it's so it takes such little time and effort to establish who they are and basically what they do, you know.
1: Absolutely. And just to mention Burt Lancaster's, you know, some of his first scenes in this movie just to touch really quick back on the old modern-day blockbuster versus this movie, one key difference when the uh, our, our co-star, our co-lead is strung up in his underwear – if you were making that movie in 2020, it would be Chris Pratt and he would have, you know, worked out for six months before the role to be ripped. In mm-hmm. this movie, Burt Lancaster is just wearing, like, long, Johns. long underwear. Yeah.
0: Twice. Twice. <laughs> and they call it out. Yes. Twice he winds up with his clothes being taken from him. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I again, I absolutely love how they sync up the characters. I think when we, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about all three of our our main points here because they again they just flow so well together in terms of the lean team again a contrast to modern blockbusters you had your four characters they were all very specialized your leader rico had a an understanding an appreciation and a respect for all of them and their specific trait and what their specialization was you didn't have like um not to bring up you know suicide squad the was it 2016 version but like you didn't need a slipknot where basically his job was basically let's throw a character to kill off real quick or something like that you didn't have this fluff and fat that you had to try and trim off it's like no it was very like decisive like why they chose those characters and what their purpose was going to be in the movie so there wasn't a lot of fluff so even when the characters interacted it felt legitimate it didn't feel like There's a bunch of extra stuff added in here because we need to elongate the movie or we have to, you know, satisfy somebody's need or want.
1: Well, I want to I want to expound on that, but remind me to come back to you mentioning no need to elongate the movie, because I will say in other ways it
0: does. There's there's Um, a specific moment when I realized this should have been cut out of it. Well, just say the chase scene after they get Maria was too long, like they needed to cut that down drastic like that that was the point of the movie. Where I'm like, okay, this is they needed to, to trim this because this is where the movie's feeling a little too long.
1: Yes, and again in that then and now kind of blockbusters of yesteryear to today, the fluff in this movie, like you said, the Maria Chase, but even more so, like how many transitions do we have to watch of characters riding horses from one location to another? Um I know Game of Thrones, I know it's not a blockbuster movie, but you would say it was a blockbuster show. Um, A lot of people complained in the last season about jetpacking. Are you familiar with that term, Mm Brett? Yeah. Yeah. So this movie is the anti-jetpacking
0: yeah, because every
1: time any characters go anywhere, we have to watch a minute scene of horses riding.
0: Well, and it's interesting because to me, you could have easily gotten away with not needing to do it in the second half of the movie because you've established how long the path was with them getting there. So we don't need to feel how long it was getting back because we already as the audience had an understanding of how long and treacherous this journey was. You adding Maria didn't change anything like that was pretty irrelevant, you know?
1: Yeah, agreed. I just thought that's the one way that this movie that was so ahead of its time still felt very of its time.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Um, um, but then to the characters, you mentioned loving Burt Lancaster, you know, the other lead being Lee Marvin. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about Lee Marvin because I don't watch old movies. I just know <laughs> he's considered a cinema badass. Would yeah. you agree? Yes, so his hard ass, by the book, discipline mentality, it contrasted so perfectly with Burt Lancaster's, you know, Doleworth.
0: Absolutely. And even the fact that they were, they're essentially best friends. Like, I love at the beginning of the movie, again, it very quickly establishes the team. We don't need, like, a very long montage and all that. But, like, when basically, you know... Rico is, he's in there, he's been hired by, you know, Grant, and he basically, Rico manipulates Grant into basically paying to get Dolworth out of jail to pay his bail he's like because at a certain point it's like i don't know if they needed if you know dolworth that they actually need him but it's one of those like rico and him are best friends they've got a lot of history together And he's like you know i think we're gonna we're gonna have to get this guy if this is gonna succeed and like and the reason i justify that is the little smirk he gives after grants like whatever it takes we'll get him out And he's just like yeah okay you pay your seven hundred dollars and we'll we'll get him out of jail <laughs> like okay that worked flawlessly like i <laughs> again just i just loved that. Again, these characters, they're not these morally upstanding people like you could clearly tell that Lee Marvin's character manipulated the guy contracting them to get his buddy out of jail.
1: No, absolutely. As, as much of a hard ass as Lee Marvin, you know, Rico is, there are several moments where he's, you know, sardonic and kind of like winking a little bit and got that smirk, like you said. So everybody feels real 3D and lived in. And you know, if you listen to this podcast, that's something I appreciate almost more than anything in a movie.
0: Mm hmm. Um, I really appreciated, again, the progressive subtext, you know, talking about the team and all that. The the moment where Grant just—it was the very beginning of the movie, I was like, oh, I don't remember this movie going down this path. But when Grant goes, do you mind working with a Negro? And I was like, oh, shit, I did not remember this movie being, like, subvertly racist. But then— Lee Marvin's character, his look, like, how can you think that, like, you piece of shit? And then, again, at first I was like, oh, is this, like, oh, I can't believe I have to work with an African-American, or is it this, I can't believe you're so close-minded to think that? And I feel like, and maybe this is me projecting or whatever, but, like, I feel the fact that we established later in the movie that Rico fought in the Mexican Revolution, and all that, he fought with them, not like he was a hired hand, like he felt for them and was fighting for their cause, to me, again, kind of it takes it back to the beginning of the movie where i'm like okay no he clearly he was just like i can't believe you would say something so ignorant you know with that and then not only that his yes. his interactions with jake never jake never felt like he was a you know he's a side character he wasn't a, a main character but he never felt like he was just kind of a tool that was there like he always felt like he was part of the team and brought something unique to the team that was necessary <sighs>
1: Absolutely, I'm glad you brought it up because yeah, I was impressed because I had that same like oh no moment um, when uh, I'm sorry. Grant? What's the what's the villain's J. W. Grant? name? J.W. Grant. Grant. Yeah when Grant drops that line, I'm like, oh, no, this is one of the reasons I was worried about watching such an old movie. But then, of course, it comes to pass that Grant is the ultimate villain of the movie. And that's the only time that sort of stuff comes up. Mm -hmm. So it just helped make Grant even more unlikable. So in that way, it works. And as you said, uh, Sharp, the, the whole movie, he's treated like an equal. He doesn't get a ton of screen time. And I think that's more due to Maybe the actor not being as strong and as big a big star as your well, two he's, leads. He was but an athlete. He's treated as an equal the whole time, and I appreciated that. And then, furthermore, man, some of the subjects I couldn't believe, like the subjects they were hitting on. Um, I thought this movie was pretty positive towards women. Absolutely. What did you think about that? Oh, absolutely.
0: That? Especially like the, the thing where, like, you know, at a certain point, like, it was like, are you trying to shame them for being, you know, sexually active? Are you trying to shame them for, like, doing whatever it is for the cause? And it's like, again our main characters didn't they're like we totally understand like at no point were they ever shaming women for any of their actions and again one of the generals of the bandits was a woman and i thought the same thing i'm like wow for again 1966 like this movie really kind of like it's one of those movies you would expect to see today like oh wow they're really pushing the gambit and like they were doing that back in 66 with this where it's just like everyone felt like they were on equal playing grounds and any any like inclination or kind of you know if if there was any subtext like it was automatically like you were an asshole for thinking that like how could you think you know that person wouldn't wouldn't be fit for this or couldn't do this task or something like that so yeah no it was i i i really again appreciated at that time what this movie was was doing
1: no absolutely and then the last note i had on that is just this movie's view of, of revolution in, in general, or revolution? Um, but I, I took down a couple of the quotes. Um, Bert Lancaster's character says, uh, "Maybe there's only one revolution since the beginning. The good guys against the bad guys. Question is, who are the good guys?" Yep. I love that 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 was so profound And that's the kind of stuff That I didn't expect From a movie in the 60s But that's why I guess I need to get over My bias and dig a little deeper Because I thought That was extremely profound
0: I, I love I have so many Again this is why I love that. I have so many lines uh, the, There's I forget who says it But if somebody says To Rico They say um, I'll be damned And Rico just You know Lee Marvin just casually Most of us are <laughs> It's just like It's like What is just I get and the, and the delivery Of some of these lines Are so fucking fantastic
1: yeah, no, and uh, two more real quick notes about uh, the revolution quotes I wrote down. Uh, and again, Burt Lancaster, he quest- he's questioning the revolution. He says, the revolution, when the shooting stops and the dead are buried and the politicians take over, it all adds up to one thing, a lost cause. Mm-hmm. And we're not a political podcast, but come on, if that's not a, a relevant quote, I don't know what is.
0: Just the whole dialogue between Dulworth and Raza. In that canyon after both of them have been yes. shot, I thought it was just my only com- one or not my only complaint, but one of my complaints in the movies, I wish it didn't take so long to get to that moment because it is such a beautiful moment between those two characters, They're friends. You know, from the past, at the same time, they both have their causes, whether it, it's money. Oh, let me don't let me forget to talk about um, when we talk about the adventure with no principles, that there actually are principles, because we always talk about characters and like they need to have a code. Like we like a character, have a code yes. and Bert Lancaster. I'm just going to talk about it now. Fuck it. It already sounds like I'm down this path. Bert Lancaster's character, Dolworth, feels like he doesn't really his code is just money. He's he's the highest bidder or whatever it is, which isn't really a code. But even at the end, they come back and, you know, what made you know lee marvin you know what made you change your mind he goes at the end of the day i'm a sucker for love and like that's essentially his code like you know at the end of the day love trumps all so he didn't give a shit about the the um the revolution and he was willing to throw his money away because he's a softy you know uh he's a, he's a romantic at the end of the day i was just again it's just there's so much about this movie that i think it is it is fantastic to watch but to, to go back to the the dialogue between Raza and Dolworth, and like they, talking about the revolution, and you know, oh, you think the revolution is a goddess, but then you realize she's not really a goddess, and you're like, it's just there's, it's so well. I got that whole oh, quote. It's, I would love to go ahead read it. and read it because I'm gonna butcher it trying to remember it offhand.
1: Yeah, no, I've got it, because it, it stood out to me. Because like you said, it's a shame it came so late, because to be honest, I was I was starting to fade. I was starting to be a little glazed over, mm-hmm. like this needs to end. And then this scene comes out of nowhere, and like I kind of sat up off the couch. So especially this uh, uh, monologue by Jesus. Uh, La revolution is like a great love affair. In the beginning, she is a goddess, a holy cause. But every love affair has a terrible enemy, time. We see her as she is. La revolution is not a goddess, but a whore. She was never pure, never saintly, never perfect. And we run away, find another lover, another cause. Quick, sordid affairs. Lust, but no love. Passion, but no compassion. Without love, without a cause, we are nothing. We stay because we believe. We leave because we are disillusioned. We come back because we are lost. We die because we are committed.
0: Ah, oh, God. So and, and yeah, my jaw was yeah, on the floor and, at that and, moment. And Jack Palance does a great job with that. I mean, that's almost his... Again, it's another one of those, like, you almost get nothing from Jack Palance until that moment. And he does a fantastic job delivering that. But I'm just going to say this. Could you imagine, the whole time I'm listening to you say that, could you imagine Pedro Pascal delivering that if they were to remake this movie and he was Raza? Oh. Holy shit, would that be amazing. <laughs> like, oh, oh yeah, I
1: just got goosebumps just <laughs> hearing it in my head from Pedro Pascal.
0: Um. But, yeah, I, and so many great, like again, you you brought it up in, in the, the opening, you know, skit, you know, when he's talking about the 100-proof women and all that, like, Amigo, you just wrote my epitaph. Or, you know, <laughs> Amigo, where did, the, where did the bullet bite you? Like, there's just, there's so many great lines in this movie, but none, none come up to my favorite exchange in the entire movie, and you have to, like, you literally have to wait the entire movie to get it. Yeah, I knew it. So, at the end of the movie, spoilers, <laughs> but... At the end of the movie, basically, you know, Lee Marvin's character, Rico, he's still a man of his code. There was a contract, and the contract, you find out that basically Maria was not kidnapped with a ransom. She basically escaped because Grant's a piece of shit. And Lee Marvin's character, at the end, says, There was no ransom. Basically, you were the one who held her ransom. So we're completing the contract by allowing her and Raza to, you know, ride off into the sunset together. And uh, they stop, the, you know, uh, Grant's men from chasing after. And Grant just, he looks up at Lee Marvin, he's getting onto his horse, and he just screams, you bastard! And Lee Marvin doesn't really look back at him. He goes, yes, sir, an accident at birth. But you, sir, are a self-made man. Oh, my God, do I fucking love that line. Oh, what what a wonderful comeback to calling being called a bastard, you know. And again, it just goes back to these characters are not they're not these shiny polished cowboys like John Wayne. Like they are rough and t- they're actually rough and tough, you know. Like they are. Oh, uh, I just I do I love I love all of the interactions. I love so much about these characters in this movie.
1: Yeah, and you know what? That line I've never heard it before. It's now instantly in like my top 50 quotes in a movie mm-hmm. but it's also because it's a snappy comeback but i think there's a lot of subtext even in that mm-hmm. like rico is basically saying like i was born and raised to be a certain way but i still have an honorable code you have just grown into this greedy ruthless monster yep at least that's my interpretation oh. on a deeper level yes
0: i i, I agree 100 percent. like yes he's yeah exactly lee marvin's character was was born basically a piece of shit you know you know uh, morally compromised person but but grant he he bought his way into that he made himself into a real piece of shit yes uh I, also to, just to go back to again the the whole um you know uh uh an adventure without uh what is it fuck principles principles <laughs> when Chiquita she's the, the the general she the the female general for the 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 bandits she goes <laughs> Dulworth won't shoot a woman and she runs she rides that horse around the corner and he just shoots her right in the back like doesn't even think twice about it I'm just like nope that is perfect like they stayed. True to that character. He shoots her, but then goes over and caresses her, kisses her goodbye. Even then, she goes to shoot him, but she's got no... Yeah, and he's not even mad. Not even mad. Again, that's Dolworth. Dolworth is such a great fucking character. He's so good.
1: Oh, So, actually, I'm glad you brought him up again, because I have a question about him, because I've only seen it once. But did I... Was I mistaken in that two times during the adventure... Like, Doleworth wants to kill the horses, and they don't, and that comes back to fuck them. Is that right?
0: So the first time Doleworth wants to kill the horses, and the horse wrangler convinces him not to, because, of course, he's got a soft— And I, I'm glad you brought this up. This was an important thing for me in the movie. So, because the wrangler's like, no, the horses won't betray us. They'll go to water. We'll be fine. And they wind up getting fucked, Right. And that's when Dolworth gets he, right because they don't. They go don't. Towards yeah, the water. they get. Str- he gets strung up in the canyon, and basically that's the moment when the Wrangler goes to kill the horses. He's like, "Okay, I made a mistake. I put myself on the line. I was wrong. I will be the. I will go kill the horses because I was wrong." And that's when Rico says, "No, no, no. We're going to need the horses now," and stops them from killing the horses because they use them later when they raid the um the compound.
1: Okay, so it in the short term, fucks them, but in the long term, it, they were necessary. Yes,
0: exactly, yeah. And with the second opportunity they get to shoot the horse, um, Rico says no because he uses it as part of the plan to, to actually go and retrieve Maria. But again— Okay, then,
1: wasn't there a moment where they release a guy and where there's the basically tell him, don't try to blow our cover? And yeah, there's the goat farmer. Isn't Dolworth mad that they don't kill that guy?
0: yeah i think Dolworth too was like his his thought was he's going to rat us out and you know that's why that's the whole scene is basically you know the the goat farmer is trying to get intel from rico and he's like when are you guys going to to raid the compound and rico goes oh it'll be the next day or maybe the day after that as soon as the goat farmer leaves rico goes no we're as planned we're going to raid it tonight so even rico feeds him false information knowing that the goat farmer can't be trusted uh, Rico, again, kind of being the strategist that the military guy goes, if the goat farmer doesn't go to town, it's going to be suspicious. So we have to let him go. It just means that, you know, we have to we have to execute our plan quickly so that he there's no opportunity for us to fail.
1: Yes. And, you know, to touch on maybe a lean team topic, as much as I didn't care for the action in this movie, I did enjoy Rico and Lee Marvin was a Marine in real life. So it shows, but just the way he takes command of situations and the way he plans things out. I love seeing that in movies. I feel like they don't have that as much in modern blockbusters where there's just a competent guy who kind of walks you through a plan. And there's like three or four of those in this movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and again, it goes back to there's times when like, when he leans on Jake for, for tracking, at no point is it he questions Jake's expertise at all. It's like he's leaning on Jake for his expertise. And the same with the horses. Like, And that's what I appreciate about this movie. is like, Lee Marvin is the leader, but he has a respect for all of the pieces, where I feel like even in a lot of the modern... You get these modern blockbusters. The leader always winds up being a leader and a jack of all trades, and they wind up doing a little bit of everybody's job too. Or they question, you know, the team that they've been put together with. And this and yeah, Tom
1: Cruise Mission Impossible, yeah. And
0: this, it's like no, like they he depends heavily on his team, this you know very lean team to get in and get out.
1: Yeah, I mean, severely missing in most blockbusters today.
0: Um, but yeah, like I just. I I am I'm am very happy that you you found found some joy in this movie because this is in terms of, you know, older movies because I won't wholly disagree with with what you're saying about, you know, 1975 being when movies really made a, a a turn. I think that there are gemstones like The Professionals where it's like, "Oh no, like this is I'm not going to say it's like, "Oh, nobody's ever heard of this movie, but I do think it is critically underrated." You know, I and in terms of westerns, I think it's, it's up there as probably one of my top two favorite ones. The iron or not Irony, but the interesting thing is, so this movie came out in 1966. Do you know what other Western came out in 1966?
1: Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? The Good,
0: the Bad, and the Ugly. Another antihero.
1: Interesting. And yeah, I think the reason I, I found this as such a uh, change of pace even for Westerns is like... I love Clint Eastwood westerns, but he's always so gruff and short. Like he's not using a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. It was nice to see like a charming, fun Burt Lancaster in this kind of movie.
0: Yep. Ah, uh, so I mean, I think we. Oh, so the last thing I really wanted to touch on because we really got onto the you know the 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 team Burt Lancaster and the uh, just the subtext you know and and kind of the progressive subtext of the movie, um, the rule of thirds. Um, I know we talked about the action wasn't necessarily great, and you did, you know, kind of criticize the the number of shots we had of guys just crossing the desert. I did think that this movie was was very pretty to watch, and I think it was in tune to or in turn a lot of it because it is very. It's a very traditional cinematography, and you don't get that in a lot of movies today. Where like, and when I bring up the rule of thirds, it's like you know, um, if you know anything about photography or video, basically you break the of. Uh, a, uh, a frame up into thirds into um so you basically have nine boxes across it and you, you try and divide up a lot of your frames where, you know, the foreground will take up two thirds of it or one third of it. But just, there were so many shots that were just gorgeous. And I think the first moment I realized, I'm like, okay, like this movie just has a lot of really traditional, gorgeous cinematographies. It's at the, towards the beginning when Grant is, is briefing them before they actually cross the border into Mexico. And it's just, it's a really well lit shot. Grants in the foreground talking, and there's just this lone lamp, like just swinging in the wind behind him, and like just the lighting is is yes. it's it's just it's such a great shot. It's like, and to me, there's so much of that is missed in modern cinematography, and I, I don't know if it's because so much is green screen and shit like that, where it's like you don't know what it is, so you're kind of putting it in there behind, or because you have so much freedom with the camera and you can pick literally any angle you want. There's not as much thought into it, or it's always about doing these wacky weird angles and and you kind of lose just the the beautiful simplicity of some of the shots but like there's another one where lee marvin is walking into a canyon when he's taking his you know his position in the the cycle of sleeping when they raid the camp there's a lot of really beautiful shots with how the lighting is hitting his face but he's in the shadows and stuff like that i just there's just a lot of really really beautiful shots in this movie and i think a lot of it is just because it is an older movie. They could not lean so much on the technology to allow the camera to like pan or run and, and you know, or you know, it winds up being everything is CGI, so like there's a fucking 360, 180, you know, jump shot or something like that that you're following. It's just they're very clean, smooth shots, and you just you it allows you to really just be with the characters um in their environment. And I just wanted to make sure I touched on that because like I said, I think I think there's some very, very pretty shots in this movie.
1: Yes, I have very little to contribute to this segment because I do not have the mind that you have, um, you know, for the visuals. But I'm glad you mentioned the lantern scene because I mentioned earlier the moment where I was like, holy shit, I'm enjoying this movie. And I think that was the exact moment. I wrote it down in my notes because it's the kind of the last moment in quote unquote civilization before they head out on this adventure and like it feels like there's like a storm on the horizon and there's like dark clouds in the background and you just that ominous swinging of that lantern Hmm. and even though the action couldn't possibly live up to it the amount of foreboding that I felt just in that scene and I couldn't quite put my finger on why but it's because of the composition of the frame and just that lantern swinging and that that sound
0: yep so you know, as as much as I've basically jerked off this movie uh, for the past 36 minutes, you know, I, I will say it's not a perfect movie. Um, there's definitely some pacing issues, especially after they actually retrieve Maria. Basically, from the moment they get on the ch- train and get it going backwards to about the moment where they get to the canyon where um, Dolworth Burt Lancaster's character decides he's going to stay behind to try and slow down Raza, that it feels very long and tedious to me. Um, there's a couple good scenes... Um, in there, I'm not saying it's completely lost, but that's where the pacing kind of takes a huge hit for me. Um, at that point in the movie, um, was this. I think in terms of writing, and this goes back to kind of the, the action we talk about, they talk Raza up so much throughout the entire movie. I think the action with Raza winds up being... Very anticlimactic. Not to say that Raza himself isn't, because that mon—you know—the do- monologue you shared earlier is just fantastic. And you're like, "Holy shit!" Like I was not expecting that. That's fan. And like when he's talking to Dolworth, like this was this was worth uh, all of all you know, listening about Raza, Raza, Raza. But like the as much as they talk him up, I never thought the only thing I thought they could possibly be justifying for it is why he was able to catch up with them as they were traversing the Mexican terrain. And that was simply because, like, oh, he's a native. He's so rough, you know rough and gruff that he'll be, you know, he'll be able to catch up with us and stuff like that. Because he, you can't stop Raza. But like the actual, like, combat with him, I, th- I thought was was kind of missing. It, it never really fulfilled. You know, I never got fulfillment. It didn't pay off with as much as they talked him up.
1: Yeah, because they kind of build him up as a almost a. Uh... Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, Mm -hmm. like he's the boogeyman. And number one, I think the movie waits too long for them to encounter Raza. I think that's another pacing issue Mm -hmm. Um, because, again, just like there's seven shots of horses riding, there's ten scenes of talking up Raza. We just needed to get to him sooner. And then to your point, when we do – the, his first action scene should be so savage, and he should look so competent that now you see why they're so not necessarily afraid of him because they're they used to be friends with mm-hmm. him, but they know he's formidable.
0: Yeah, I think the the first time you interact with Raza is when they take the train filled with the military. Like again, saying it on paper that sounds really like crazy, but the action sequence itself is it's it's kind of slow. They take the train and then the. You know it it goes back to what we're talking about kind of you know not to spoil any kind of wrap-up show but like with Leon how um, was it Stan he doesn't have a problem doing the dirty work and that was the same thing with Raza like Raza basically loads up his pistol and he when they take the the soldiers prisoner and execute them he's the one he shoots them until his guns out and then leaves it for the rest of his his people to do like he has no problem getting his hands dirty Um, and I guess that shows a little bit of ruthlessness to him, but even to that point, it just it never really materialized to the amount that Rico and Dolworth talked him up.
1: Yeah, no, agree. That that action scene taking the train, that you gotta do a better job of menace with Raza.
0: So um with that said, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we jump into Chop Shop?
1: Uh I think I'm ready for the chop.
0: Alrighty, so uh unfortunately we forgot to do this at the end of the last episode, but off off uh screen camera, I don't know what the fuck you wanna say. Um we were we did our our randomizer and figured out what our what we were gonna have to turn this movie into. I received horror, so I have to turn this into a horror movie. Travis, I believe you got miniseries. Yes. Yes. So do you wanna start us off or do you want me to?
1: uh well i got many series so mine's pretty lengthy so i'll let you start it out all right
0: all right so um you know if you want to uh to ask questions throughout this this is one i i felt like i had a pretty solid beginning and ending but i felt like maybe the the second act or towards the end of the second act was was a little lacking so maybe we we can help you know shore that up a little bit but essentially what i want to do is i want to take this movie the professionals i want to add touch of Supernatural. Just a touch, kind of like the premise of of just Supernatural, maybe kind of the buddiness of it. And I want to marry it with Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. All right? These are are the ingredients that I use to beef up and turn the professionals into a horror movie. So, the movie opens up very similar. Four men are hired um, by a rich prick uh, to retrieve his wife from the south of the border. The only exception is Grant mentions Raza and Rico, or mentions Raza to Rico, and in that scene, Rico looks a little a little puzzled, a little concerned. All right. We don't find out in that moment why, but um, when Rico goes to basically bail Dolworth out of jail, um, he talks to him about what the you know the contract is, um, and it basically ex- explains to him that they have to go retrieve Maria, and Raza is behind it. And Dolworth looks up, a little stunned, a little confused, you know zoom in on his face in the shot he says I thought Raza was dead next shot we go back to you know the the men in the camp getting ready to cross the border so the four men agree to the contract Jake's the uh, the only other exception is Jake's attire is a little bit different um, beyond you know kind of the guns and the, the bow and arrow which we didn't talk about at all the he just had a bow and arrow which there is fun trivia uh, we'll get to with that but besides that um he also now has maybe some bones draped around him a little bit and then not only that maybe some glyphs are painted on his leather vest i'm thinking maybe you know johnny depp's tonto from the lone ranger but not offensive um but you know kind of there's this i don't want to say voodoo but there's definitely like a, a sense of like a, a ghost whisper, some kind of paranormal vibe to him all right so okay. it's a little what
1: i was gonna say okay
0: okay okay so the four men agree to uh yeah agree to the contract so the four start their journey through mexico with dolworth writing you know very similar to how the movie ends at a certain point dolworth is going to ride ahead he's still marking things uh, uh you know safety with a cross because i think that you know the cross is a good image in a horror movie and stuff like that so um dolworth still encounters the bandits in the canyon much like he he did in the movie but when dolworth asks if they work for raza trying to get information from them the bandits just start to laugh right and they say raza hasn't been seen in years but some say you can still hear screams through the canyon walls well right about this time we hear jake kind of do like a an otherworldly call through the canyon basically to kind of start all the bandits and this allows Rico get to get the jump on them it, you know a uh, similar takedown the bandits are now gone they have these horses that they're gonna go um, try and raid the the encampment with. So you know, night brings up Dolworth, brings up going through you know the cemetery of nameless men, and asks Rico if he if he's a superstitious man at all. Rico says he only fears the living, and you know the four start their sleep cycle. Well, you know it just so happens to be a full moon this night. Oh, you know, uh, that storm is a brewing, the wind is howling, and all of a sudden raza specters appear and they attack the men, causing them to have to flee their camp, right? So they wind up having to run, leave in such a rush, they leave most of their supplies behind. Right? They get out with just barely with what they can, and that's when it's revealed that Jake is not just a bounty hunter, but he's also a member of the Order of Souls. And he was brought in specifically to help break a soul debt. You know? Now we realize this is this is much more paranormal, right? So, he was unaware that they would be walking through haunted grounds. Otherwise, he would have, you know, uh maybe set up some salt, some salt rings or something like that to prevent the, them from being attacked by the ghosts. Um ultimately, the uh, the men do wind up going and scouting the hacienda. Obviously, when this Raza's specters appear, all you know, the ghost army from the the cemetery of nameless men, Rico and Dolworth notice Raza's, you know, uh ghost, you know, Rod, you know, uh What is it? Kind of, you know, is it flesh-eaten ghost or whatever you want to say here? So, um, you know, they scout the Hacienda. They find out where Maria is being kept, but they realize that they are no match for the supernatural forces that are protecting this small fortress. So this is where we get into a little bit of the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. So Rico and Dolworth, they're going to go back to the cemetery. They're going to speak with Raza, just the two of them, because they have a relationship, right? They got history with Raza. It's here when Rico confesses that he unknowingly basically put a curse on Raza and his men because they watched his wife being killed by the soldiers. Because there's that whole scene in the movie where, you know, basically they, they you know, discuss how Rico had a uh, a wife. She was part of the revolution. She was a rev- revolutionary. And basically the Mexican army, you know, stripped her down naked and dragged her through a cactus field until there was, you know, she was basically just dead and all of the other revolutionaries just watched so rico's got a chip on his shoulder we're gonna find out that raza even being the badass that he is basically just watched that happen so uh you know unknowingly rico did put a curse on raza for for you know basically standing and watching that happened so he, he goes to make a bargain with raza he's like listen if you will help us storm the hacienda and free maria I will, you know, I, I will lift the curse. Allow you all to basically finally pass on to the next realm and all that. And at first, Raza is basically like, you can go fuck yourself. You know, I don't need you. I don't need your mercy. I don't need your, you to lift this curse, right? But this is when Dolworth asks. He's like, hey, Raza, what was, that, what was that girl you were always talking about on the battlefield? The ones you wanted to come home to? He's like, Maria? He goes, and that's doris basically talks and and basically this is when rosa realizes that maria is the one that is being held at the supernatural stronghold right so now with this rosa realizes it's maria he agrees to storm the fortress because beyond now him and his men will get to move on to the next realm but on top of that he's going to help free his loved one because he knows the atrocities that happen in this you know haunted hacienda so, Roz and his ghostly crew are going to attack the Hacienda. This gives Rico and his crew an opportunity to go in and basically bargain with, um, you know, the, the owner of the estate. Whoever's, you know, uh, you know an unnamed force you know, at this point, it's just going to be some kind of, like, mysterious figure. We don't need to know a lot of their backstory. Basically, it's, a you know, a devilish character. Uh, they learn Maria was not kidnapped, much like the movie we have. But actually, she was taken because Grant made a deal with the devil. And ultimately all of his fortune was at the cost of the souls of women that he's been marrying. So ultimately he will marry a woman because he's made this deal with the devil that for every, you know, bride that he basically sacrifices, because this is supposed to be love of his life, um, he gains more riches. So this is like his third or fourth wife, Maria is. So basically he he, you know, convinces a woman to marry him and then basically sacrifices them. To a, a a demon in order to to gain more riches, so the four men realize this. Um, you know all this fortune is at the cost of the souls of these women. The four men return. You know they, they're able to to take Maria out. It seems a little too easy. You know maybe the audience is thinking that like me, you were watching the movie you're like what the fuck? Like that's all they just went in there and they took her. What this is weird. So you know uh, they get Maria back. They explain to grant they know everything they know what he's been doing they think you know he's it's a piece of shit they can't believe he does this so grant goes on to explain that everything has a cost right but men like the four of them are the easiest to buy and ultimately, this was a win-win situation for him because either he would get Maria back, he would get his wife back, and they would wind up, you know, killing this or, you know, destroying whatever this force was. And a curse would be broken. And he would no longer have to do this exhausting effort to basically marry a woman so that he could basically give her away. Um, or they would all die and Grant would just marry someone again and, and continue to, to build his riches. Um so as he's going through this, at this point, Grant kind of starts to cackle at how, you know, a genius he is. And right about the time he does that, it's that classic scene in the movie where you hear the... And, you you know, the, you just zoom in on the on the face, and it's just like the shock. And that's when we realize Maria has plunged a knife into his back. And at that point, we see his soul leave his body and is transferred into a gym in the handle of the dagger that she stabbed him. And basically, it is transferred the debt of his soul to whatever the demon or devil creature was and th- ju- thus settling the debt freeing maria maria winds up paying them in what they were promised thanking them for her you know her being able to escape obviously she's going to inherit whatever his wealth was um and then the men ride off into the sunset uh, oh and then obviously after you know there's going to be some moment after rosa's forces storm the the fortress rico and and dolworth will you know thank him and they'll be able to fade off into the next. You know, realm so we'll, we'll get to that but that's that's ultimately how i wanted to kind of turn this into a a horror movies i still think we need the aspect of like you know grants is a piece of shit maria was not there was no ransom whatsoever um i really like the idea of because it was brought up a couple times the cemetery uh, of the nameless men and then raza ultimately being kind of like this revolutionary force that you know ultimately got cursed by rico and is, is able to redeem himself
1: I mean that was super creative. I guess the only question that was gnawing at me, and I wanted to save it until the end. Um, part of the reason we both love this movie is is Dolworth and his humor. Does your does your horror movie still keep Doleworth as that kind of character? And, is he some sort of comedic relief? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Because I don't want to... It, it's not a horror movie in the sense of like you know a slasher or something like that. But I think Dolworth and even his attitude on life. And like what life means and like kind of he's he's more like nihilistic like what does anything really matter like you know everything has a lot of the movie to me was going to be thematic around the idea that everything has a cost everything has a price so dolworth kind of at the beginning looking like he's somebody who you know he's only in it for money and cost i think kind of helps echo that point and then at the end he still kind of has that redeeming moment where ultimately he helps maria break herself free of this curse because again going back to he's a fool for love and realizes that What Grant has is a bastardization of love. So therefore, you know, he's justified in the fact of, you know, trying to keep that force alive.
1: Gotcha. And then my only other question about him is, so he's aware of the curse that's on Raza and why he was involved with Rico with that curse? Yes. Okay. Okay. And that's part of him, I guess, growing as a character to the end is he's also willing to let her go because he knows it's the right thing
0: yep i think it's one of those things. Like, rico doesn't want to acknowledge that he knows that he cursed the uh cursed the army because he did fight with them whereas dolworth is willing to accept things beyond ah. you know beyond what is easily explained and especially kind of like jake will kind of help echo that um and then ultimately the i think the the horse wrangler he didn't come up in my my chop shop here very much but i think he plays a, a very similar role as he did in this, the, the actual movie is that he's kind of the, um, I feel like it's kind of the audience writing along with it. Like, you know, he's getting to understand a lot of what's going on. Like he's definitely the most foreign, like there's moments in the movie where like, you know, he's definitely the one who's affected the most by the heat and all that. Whereas, you know, Jake Rico and Dolworth, all, you know, they're used to riding through this heat. So, and you know, this environment. So I think, you know, the the horse wrangler very much is kind of the every man who kind of got put up to this and is allowed to rise to the occasion but it also is the the vessel that allows the audience to kind of learn through them so like the other three might know what's going on but they have to explain it to the wrangler and again that makes a, there's a logical sense as to why this is being explained to the audience because the audience's avatar is essentially the wrangler
1: okay i see it was supernatural that's a tough line to toe uh, how you introduce it so yeah it's good to have that, that avatar uh, uh but yeah applause man that was uh creative and if i ever got horror i definitely would not have thought of to bring lord of the rings and that mysticism so i dig it
0: <laughs> yeah i had a feeling that when i said i was to touch of lord of the rings <laughs> The, the return of the king is like, this is going to be one of those. It's like, mm, they'll under, you'll understand when I get to that part. But <laughs> like, um, but alrighty. So that concludes my shop shop, Travis, I would love to hear what you have.
1: Yes, sir. Um, so as I said, it's a little bit lengthy. I'll try to, uh, self edit where I can, but I got the, uh, the prestige mini series. So I went with a four part HBO event, hbo presents the professionals um as far as flavoring think about sicario with some unforgiven and then a splash of i don't know whatever movie you think of when you think about flashbacks so okay there you go
0: like a memento maybe
1: so episode what's that what you say? The i you oh,
0: no, there, i said memento did you hear that
1: oh no 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 no. i, I couldn't tell what you said and then it cut out okay
0: oh uh, yeah maybe
1: memento but just just you'll see when the flashbacks okay. come okay. maybe you can tell me what might fit better all right all right but anyway episode one bill and rico uh, we open in J.W. Grant's bedroom. He's in the middle of consoling Maria. He's telling her that he's doing the best to make ends meet and keep their farm running and paying all the farm hands, But she's the most important thing to him. And Maria seems disgusted by this and kind of recoils from his embrace. Before we can figure out more, a rock breaks through the bedroom window, startling them both. Grant runs to the bedroom window to see one of his horse barns ablaze. Grant shouts from the window, Jorge, Miguel, Tito, are you down there? We need to put out the fire. Grant turns around to tell Maria to stay put, but as he turns around, Maria is gone, and Grant is knocked unconscious by an unseen assailant. And that's where we're going to cut to the opening credits of The Professionals. After the opening, we're going to stick mostly to the movie uh, with Grant trying to hire men to assist him and getting his wife back. Uh, but I wanted to give a little more detail to uh, Rico and uh, Dolworth. So they're still ex-military. They fought in the Mexican Revolution together. Uh, but now they're civilian contractors who kind of make their living from – going town to town to train local law enforcement on, on combat and how to be more effective. Obviously they both have their specialties. Mm -hmm. So of course, two men like this, Grant's going to seek them out um, because of their growing fame. And he explains what we saw in the opening um, that the farm was raided and people attacked his home and kidnapped his wife. The two men agree to his job to go searching for Raza, uh, who JW suspects Um, they agree to the job, but they say they have one job left but it's on the way to Mexico and, and they'll get it on the way. So they agree and uh, they head out. So the mission that they have before Mexico is they're helping two sheriff deputies track down a fugitive. Uh, they're hunting them through the mountains. Uh, after like a prolonged action chase, the fugitive is finally cornered at the mouth of a cave. Now the two deputies, they're green, they're, they're terrified. And they ask Rico and Dolworth to lead the way. And the, the two guys are heroes. They roll their eyes at the, the, the pussy, pansy-ass lawmen. Uh, but they're, they devise a plan to enter the cave. And much like in the movie, the pair are tactical and stealthy. They enter the cave without detection. Um, the two deputies, their role is to cre- create commotion outside. So Rico and Dolworth get in the cave, and they realize that the fugitive has only stolen food and has a wife and a young child living in the caves. They disarm the fugitive, who turns out to be Jake Sharp. Um, and I'll get to his backstory in a little bit. We'll learn more about him. But Rico and Dalworth have Jake and his family at gunpoint debating on what should be done since Jake only sold food for his family. Before they can finish their conversation, the deputies come storming in, prepared to arrest the family, um, at least one of the deputies. The other deputy thanks Jake for leading him out into the wilderness where it's nice and quiet because no one will hear the gunshots or miss him and his family. The other deputy kind of tries to speak to his partner, saying, hey, this isn't the law. Our job is just to take him in. But the partner's unmoved and points the pistol first to Jake, but then moves it to his wife. Rico and Dolworth make eye contact knowing they can't allow this to happen, and they quickly gun down the deputy. They then train their guns upon the remaining deputy, and we roll credits on episode
0: one. So you're saying they did shoot the deputy?
1: But they did not shoot the sheriff. Is that what you're going (laughs) to
0: say? (laughs) Sorry to break your flow. Sorry to break your flow. (laughs)
1: Um, So, yeah, we don't know at the end of episode one what they do with the remaining deputy. So, episode two, Sins of the Father.
0: Uh,
1: We pick up right where we left off with the deputy at gunpoint. And he cowers and begs, telling the men he only wanted to do what's right. He was just trying to do his job. Rico and Dolworth take the deputy's gun and tell him to return to town. And they tell him that he'd be wise not to pin a murder on any of them. The deputy nods and exits the cave. Rico and Dolworth turn to Jake and offer him a job, helping to get Grant's wife back. Jake agrees as long as they can find shelter for his family in the meantime. Rico agrees. Go to the opening credits. After the credits, we open on a young teenage boy riding in a wagon with his father down a long dirt road. We see they're heading towards a farmhouse. The teenager asks his father if they're really going to own all of this land, and the father replies, That's right, J.W., and if you do a good job with your chores and learn how to work around the farm, one day this will all be yours. Young J.W. Grant's eyes beam with pride and excitement as the wagon pulls up to the front of the farmhouse. Um, So... At this point, we're going to establish that J.W. Grant's father has purchased this farm uh, that we later see being burnt attacked in episode one. Um, basically, J.W. Grant Sr. Uh, bought out the, you know, the, the people who owned this farm, who cared about it, or doing a good job, uh, but they agreed to keep on all the farmhands that originally worked on the farm. And here, young J.W. is going to meet uh, a, a teenage uh, Jesus Raza. And another uh, teenage Maria, and um, slight tweak here. Instead of lovers, they're going to be siblings. Okay. Uh, with Maria being a little bit younger, uh, and their parents are one of the many farm hands on the property. So J.W. develops feelings for Maria, you know, through montages, you know, working on the farm. But Jesus disapproves. You know, this is an outsider. The the farm's, you know, running terribly, especially as time goes on. J.W.'s not carrying his weight around the farm. Uh, Basically, they're running the farm into the ground a little bit. Um, And, of course, J.W. Sr. is very antagonistic and cruel to the farmhands. As time progresses, Jesus and J.W. don't like each other at all, but they maintain a wary but cordial relationship. J.W. and Maria are friendly, but Maria states they can never be more because her family doesn't approve. And J.W., think about uh, Anakin Skywalker in episode two. He's going to be an angsty teen who, you know, he complains about his father, how he loves Maria. And, you know, they would be together if it wasn't for her family. Well, J.W.'s father, typical Rich, you know, spoil the kid. He devises a plan. Now, we're not going to get too into the weeds, but JW is tasked with leading some of the farmhands on a recovery mission because some cattle have been stolen. So JW leads Jesus and his father, and in parentheses I put, do we call him God? <laughs> uh, into the night to recover them. So we're going to join them, you know, out on the middle of the trail and their wagon is ambushed along a hillside trail. Jesus is shot from his horse and falls down the hillside. God, I guess I did go with the God name. God is shot as well, but only falls near the ledge. A terrified JW cowers under the wagon as several sets of footsteps approach. Some of JW seniors, henchmen look under the wagon and one speaks to JW. Sorry, turning the page. Come on out of there, J.W., your daddy sent us. He said it's time for you to be a man and take what's yours. He hands J.W. a pistol and gestures towards Maria, Maria's mortally wounded father, God, who is praying. Go ahead, boy. He's all that stands in the way of you and happily ever after with old sweet Maria. J.W., with tears in his eyes, looks at Maria's father. Suddenly, disgust washes over his face, even anger. He fires one shot, killing the man. The henchmen all laugh, offering J.W. a drink. J.W. looks conflicted, but takes a sip. Another henchman moves towards the man's dead body and gives it a hard kick, sending the corpse sliding down the hillside. Go see your son down there, God. (laughs) The group tells J.W. to ride back to the farm, but before he does, one of the henchmen speaks. Oh, sorry, J.W., one more thing. We gotta make this look realistic. You're not the lone survivor of a vicious attack. Or you're the lone survivor of a vicious attack. You need to look the part. So the group move in on J.W. about to inflict some punishment. We see the first punch land with uh, J.W. falling to the ground. We then hard cut to the bottom of the hillside as a wounded Jesus tries to muffle his sobs lying next to his dead father. He can hear the beating of J.W. up the hill. We zoom out above the trees in a bird's eye view of the action. The final scene of the episode is Maria hearing a knock at the door. She opens it and we see the light wash over JW outside. His face bloodied and bruised. He looks up sadly as Maria realizes why he is here. Roll credits.
0: So did did Jesus see JW shoot his dad? Are we...
1: No, because he's down okay. on the hillside, but he can hear everything that's going on. Okay. Yeah, good good clarification. Anything else I need to clarify? No, up no, no. I'm, I'm digging it. I'm right digging now? it okay good so episode 3 or 4 is going to be called memories and the episode o- episode opens with rico dolworth and jake approaching raza's compound uh, much like in the movie they will have to try to sneak and kill their way in um there's going to be a, you know, a bunch of action. This is going to be the big action episode. Uh, once they reach Raza, again, they realize that Maria is no captive. Raza has finally come back for a sister and told her the truth about JW and the death of their father, which deep down Maria knew all along, which we kind of showed by her kind of recoiling from his embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rico and Dolworth don't seem to care. Uh, they s- explain that they've been paid to do a job and that's what they intend to do. The pair tell Raza that their mission isn't to kill him, but they are taking Maria. Maria and Raza tell the story of their childhood, but our heroes are unmoved. Uh, As uh, Raza and Maria are telling their story, Jake is kind of in the background, and he just kind of has this look of, of realization on his face. And we kind of cut to a flashback, and what we realize is that Jake was also a farmhand on that farm, And he didn't realize who they were trying to rescue, and he kind of then, through flashbacks, goes into the atrocities that uh, were visited upon the farmhands and that what they're saying is is probably the truth. Um, And this finally convinces Rico and Dolworth that they're on the wrong team. Um, So they want to go ahead and help. And Jesus and Jake scold Rico and Dolor's cavalier attitude because they're both like, you know, fuck it. You're right. We'll help you. Let's go. What they point out, Jesus and Jake, is, hey, you've been going around and training all of these law enforcement officers, all these people that Grant has on his payroll. You've just made him more powerful also that you can get paid to be, quote unquote, contractors. Um Basically, you know, this is going to be an impossible fight. They're going to be fighting a monster Mm -hmm. that Rico helped create. Uh, Despite feeling it's a suicide mission, Rico, Dolworth, Jake, Raza, Maria ride out towards Grant's Ranch. Credits roll on episode three. Episode four. And I'll tell you this, Brett. All I've got is the title and a very brief overview, but the title just felt right. It's Viva La Raza.
0: (laughs) Okay.
1: Um, so this is just going to be the big showdown of the series of them taking down J.W. Grant.
0: Now, the lighting of this, this episode— This is where I need your input completely. Are we going to make the episode really, really dark and hard to to see so it's really realistic?
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to save on the budget. It's obviously going to be at night.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, the the entire series feel like, feels like it's been leading up to this— giant confrontation so i think if we set it at night it'd make it really hard for everything to be seen it'll, it'll allow the you know the the viewer's imagination to really picture what's going on
1: i like that i like that <laughs> so it's definitely at night uh, i guess my only question and here's where i was torn if i were making this a prestige drama either rico or Dolworth would have to die because you know if it's oscar bait if it's prestige now this is prestige television so i I thought about having a tragic end for one of the characters but then i thought okay okay even if it is a limited series maybe we want to keep them alive for future adventures what do you think
0: i think you could have a spin-off where jake winds up replacing it'd be like dolworth and jake because my thought is rico's gonna feel like he created the monster that is you know grant so he's gonna wind up sacrificing himself almost like a frankenstein's monster type thing where i guess it's not true because that's not how that story actually goes i think he winds up sacrificing himself to destroy the compound or like you know the the barracks of the the monstrosity that he's created
1: yes i i okay that i like that because yeah to help k- kill the monster he created which i know that's why you went with frankenstein
0: yeah the only problem is in frankenstein so, yeah. frankenstein kills its the monster kills itself after frankenstein freezes so i was like ah it's kind of reverse thing but yes ultimately yeah same same kind of premises i, I think rico winds up having to kind of come to amends of what he's done and atone for that and in doing so I think he'll wind up killing himself and then it will give Dolworth something more to live for. You know, seeing his friend sacrifice himself for him to be able to continue on and then that will allow, if you want to do a spinoff or just you want to leave it on, I don't want to say cliffhanger, but it'll allow like Dolworth and Jake go off and maybe like they now, more like a Robin Hood type thing because Jake has the perspective of being, you know, um, you know, need in need and dolworth has the experience and background to be able to help kind of be like this kind of robin hood duo
1: that you read my mind because i didn't know whether i wanted rico to die but i knew that the end point would be the surviving members kind of becoming a posse to basically go around and try to right the wrongs that rico and dolworth helped create and, and that would also kind of be in Rico's memory. So you could even bring Maria and Raza into it at times. And now it's a four-man posse, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but yeah, that, that was my idea. Um, hopefully it was good enough to potentially get that season I, two that I, we just uh, – I like – I,
0: I have one question though. How does Grant die? Please. Ooh, I feel like that's that's he... that's going to be that that's going to determine how this is received is how this whole Damn. series is about Grant being a piece of shit. Who kills Grant and how does he die?
1: Fuck. So it can't be Billy the Kid just turning around on the horse and randomly shooting. him. <laughs> I mean,
0: it could. I just don't know if the viewers are going to appreciate it. You might get some backlash. <laughs> um, you might get your Star Wars pi- uh show canceled. So.
1: Oh, uh, you know, Brad, do you have any ideas because I did not think about yes, that's the the landing point, the sticking point is is how Grant goes out.
0: See, I don't there's so many I mean, different I think it's things gotta be, going through my head. Yeah. Cuz uh, that's why I was asking did Raza see uh, his dad Jesus die? Yeah, cuz if he saw his dad die, cuz at that point if he only saw his dad get tossed down and then heard Grant getting beat up, he could easily have thought Grant was trying to save his dad. Like if depending on what he heard. If he only heard Grant getting the shit beat out of him and not the, you know, the
1: Well, but remember there was a lot of dialogue there right, too. Right, it says
0: I did he was he able to hear that dialogue? Cuz if he heard that then that yes. then he knows yes. what happened. So, I think it's a you could have a couple different ways. My initial thought would be Maria finds out and Maria goes to kill Grant, right? Because this is a revenge. Her whole life has been on a lie. But then it's an opportunity to keep Maria pure, and that either Raza or Dolworth kind are come up, and they're actually the ones who wind up killing Grant, so that Maria doesn't have to have that on her conscience that she's going to do it. Or you could have it an empowered moment where basically Maria is like, you took everything from me, and then she's going to take everything from him.
1: So- oh, Brett. You, you, you nailed it because I forgot to pay off something I did in episode one, which we didn't see who actually knocked out Grant at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We could have in episode four, it, it was Maria and she was basically orchestrating her whole escape there, like with the rock coming through the window, like mm-hmm. all that was planned so that she could escape and that start her revenge. Basically, she had to get away to kind of get the gang together sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Because that's when
1: and Raza and her were always planning to come back for revenge, and boom, they run into our heroes, and now, bam, same goal. There it is.
0: So, yeah, and then it also allows if you want it to be a you know a a four posse, it allows Maria doesn't wind up being dead weight where it's constantly her moral conflict because I fucking hate that in shows where you have the one person who's supposed to be morally like, you know uh what is it pure or anything like that and all they do is drag down the rest of the characters and prevent them from actually taking any action and then it always winds up backfiring almost like the horses did in the real movie i'm like at a certain point it's like the you know i i don't need the the puritan you know
1: right especially in in kill or be killed situations Mm -hmm. so and it's good especially not to have that be a woman because i also i doubly hate it when it's a woman that's the wet blanket character yep
0: so yeah i i mean i like uh, so, yeah, it i think that's i think, that's, I think that's a solid way to, to to expand that out
1: i do appreciate it amigo do you want to roll into our last few segments
0: yeah we got a couple more segments here so um blue book is gonna be a little short i could not find any information on the budget of this movie but i can tell you what it grossed do you want to guess how much the movie grossed u.s and canada
1: i'm trying to remember what italian job grossed just for frame of reference but i don't remember i'll say this made nine million dollars
0: so you want to add 10 on to that okay okay um, in 1966
1: dollars. so that's
0: the thing i'm wondering too is i don't know if that is when it made what it made in 1966 or is that what it made its lifetime because it was re-released i think in the 70s so i don't know if that's like total gross or if that was the gross it made at that time
1: yeah i'm assuming it would be impossible to even track down like opening weekend numbers at that point
0: yeah um yeah it just says box office is 19.5 million dollars so i mean it it made a a a decent amount of money
1: yeah i was trying to google and uh it just points me back to last week's review the professional so yeah i got nothing
0: um Yep, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't break down when it made the money. Just that that is the money that it made. So, <laughs> um, we will jump into some uh, tag and title. How about that? Let's do it. All right. So I'm gonna give you three taglines. One tagline is the official tagline, or one of the official taglines to of this movie. One is a tagline. Um, I feel a movie that is adjacent to this. And then one is a tagline that I created. So what you need to do, you will listen. I need you to guess what you think the official tagline of the movie is. Are you ready? Yes, sir. The biggest, roughest, toughest, and most beautiful picture ever made. They're perfect for the job. It captures the flavor of a brawling, lusty Mexico. (laughs) Those are...
1: Uh, The last... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say the last one is not one you created because as creative (laughs) as you are, Brett, I don't even know why. What was that word?
0: It captures the flavor of a brawling, lusty Mexico
1: yeah brawling lusty mexico yeah. i don't see you coming up with those so i'm gonna say that's either this movie or another western set in mexico which could be a million of them mm-hmm. well uh, what was the first one could be the first the
0: one. biggest roughest toughest and most beautiful picture ever made
1: i'm gonna say that's the one for this movie
0: that's the one for this movie
1: yeah, and I'm going to say they're perfect for the job by Process of Elimination is one that you made up. And then the brawling, what a pure Mexico. I'll say that's another movie. I couldn't guess what it is.
0: All righty. Final answer. Final answer. So you are right. They're perfect for the job is what I made. That was mine. It captures the flavor of a brawling, lusty Mexico was one of the <laughs> taglines for this movie. So wow. So here's an interesting. So the biggest, roughest, toughest, and most beautiful picture ever made was John Wayne's The Searchers, which is held as one of like the mm. quintessential like, you know, best westerns ever made. So the reason I picked that one specifically though is because the professionals had two other taglines. One being, "When you want action, this is the one you want, which is a terrible generic tagline. But the other one was rough, tough, and ready. And I just thought it was how generic a Western tagline has to be. That the searchers was the biggest, roughest, toughest, and most beautiful picture ever made. And one of the taglines for the professionals was rough, tough, and ready. Like, rough and tough seems to be a Western, like, that's Western lexicon. (laughs) You know, you you throw that into a Western tagline.
1: Yeah, I mean, throw some rootin' tootin' in there.
0: I almost gave you rough, tough, and ready, the biggest roughest toughest and then also made one for myself that had rough and tough and and then you had to try and choose between <laughs> three rough and toughs um but i thought that would be a little too meta
1: yeah and you know give me a win on the game at least <laughs> I, I couldn't have possibly uh, got any of them right at that point
0: um so you have time capsule we'll do time capsule and then i have one piece of trivia that i think is really fun before we close this baby out
1: uh, yeah, my time capsule is very brief because, again, I thought we would have a lot of content this week, and I was right. It's so no surprised who I want to look at Mr. Jack Palance. Jack Palance.
0: <laughs> this is the third so trilogy I I... in a row we've had a Jack oh, Palance movie.
1: <laughs> I mean, spoilers. We might reveal what we're reviewing in the next trilogy, and, and you can see if Jack Palance shows up. But <laughs> uh, time capsule is kind of where we take a look at an element of the movie. And either 10 years prior or 10 years in the future, where's an element of that movie. Of course, this week, like I said, Jack Palance. But in doing that, you know what I realized, Brett? What's that? Jack Palance was a hell of a busy man.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: His he, so we'll focus on 1976. He has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven projects Um, I'm not going to read the names of the movies. I'm just going to read his character names and just see if maybe it's something you would want to watch. Well, actually, you know what? I'll give you the movie title, too. So in Rulers of the City, he plays Scarface Manzari.
0: Yeah, I'd watch that.
1: In Safari Express, he plays—I'm assuming I'm pronouncing this right—Van Dalen. That's V A N space D A A
0: L E N. I mixed on that one. I, I would need to see some box art for that.
1: That's fair. I guarantee you, you'll watch this one. The title of the movie is Black Cobra Woman. Jack Palance plays Judas.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: I think I would be in for that. Um, he apparently was in a short lived TV series called Bronk. And he played Lieutenant Alex Bronkoff.
0: Was he the protagonist?
1: He seems to be the protagonist. Yeah, the the series is named after him. I mean, Matlock is not a villain on Matlock. (laughs) Maybe they were rivals. (laughs) And uh, another 1976 title called Cop in Blue Jeans. (laughs) And he either has a dual role... Or has an alter ego.
0: Does he play the voice of the genes? He plays
1: both Nor... God damn it, (laughs) Brett. No, but I think we need to go ahead and put that in the old Chop Shop uh, (laughs) book of possible real movies. Uh, But no, he plays Norman Shelley slash Richard J. Russo. Um, And then lastly, I'll, I'll just cheat. This was 75. Title of the movie, The Sensuous Nurse... And he plays Mr. Kitch. So I guess my overall point is if you want more Jack Palance, the man gave it to you. You could, he if feels, you had to pick a desert island actor, he'd keep you occupied the longest.
0: He feels like an Eric Roberts that I'd want to follow his career. Like I like Eric Roberts and in, in certain roles, but Jack Palance, I feel like I feel like I would always get Jack Palance and I would at least want to watch clips of Jack Palance and whatever he's in
1: yeah i mean i'm just looking through some of his other titles Dude, he's in in batman. last ride of the dalton gang
0: he's in batman What's he's that? in tim burton's batman
1: oh yeah no of yeah. course of course we mentioned that but it's just some of these deep cuts like playing will smith in the last ride of the dalton gang
0: <laughs> oh man Good old fucking Jack Palance. Uh So, yeah, what was your trivia? Um, So, funny enough, when they were shooting, the, most of this movie was shot, I think, um, more like California, Nevada area, like uh, Death Valley. Um, So, the cast and crew actually wound up staying in Vegas most of the time. And apparently, oh, Woody Strode, who played Jake, um, and Lee Marvin would pull a lot of pranks and get into some trouble. And apparently, uh, one night, do you... <laughs> Do you know the, uh, the iconic image, the giant neon cowboy in Vegas? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, apparently, one night, they uh, shot it with a, a bow and arrow and damaged it briefly, and it had to be repaired. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Which I guess it kind of shows they have a good chemistry in the movie because they had a great chemistry outside the movie. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. It shows and, and God, I just this was such a different era of filmmaking. Like, can you imagine like filming Oceans Eleven, Brad Pitt and George Clooney shoot a sign <laughs> with a bow and arrow?
0: No, I can't, but I would love to hear that story. <laughs> yes. All right. So we'll we'll close it out here. Um, you know, what what do we recommend? I'll start it off. I mean, I basically made love to the movie at the beginning of this podcast. I legitimately do love this movie, even for its It's flaws i'm not gonna say that they're not there um in terms of westerns it's definitely one of my my favorite westerns um up there with you know the good the bad and the ugly um not to be a basic bitch um but um i uh i would definitely recommend watching this movie if nothing else i think it was far ahead of its time and i think it's still the dialogue is very enjoyable the characters are very enjoyable um I think if you like to just have kind of a variety of movies on your shelf in case, you know, anybody comes over and wants something, I think it's a great option for a Western movie that I think is very approachable for a lot of people. So, you know, if you had the good, the bad, and the ugly, the professionals, and then maybe something else traditional or even uh, more contemporary on your shelf just to diversify it, I think it would be worth having it. But I definitely think you should, at a bare minimum, watch this movie.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, shocked to say that I'm close to in locksteps with you. I don't quite love the movie as much as you, but it, I'll give a specific recommend. If you know somebody in your life that's like me and just refuses to give old things a chance, specifically movies, I think this is a great intervention movie. Like, it really makes me want to go back and explore older Westerns and just older movies in general. So just that alone coming from me is a high compliment. Uh, maybe if you're very familiar with sixties and seventies Westerns, maybe this isn't as impressive to you, but yeah, I, I would say to your point, if you just want to have some variety, if you want to be, even if it's just to show like, Hey, I like older films too, this is a good one to have, and it's actually fun to watch. So, recommend.
0: So, I think it actually went up for a decent number of, um, like, Oscars and stuff like that. Unfortunately, it got beat to shit by, I believe it was Rose... Not Rosemary's Baby. Um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Was that... No, no, it wasn't that. It was some, like... What the fuck was it called? ch um, Give me a second. I'm going to look it up. I mean,
1: would this have been the 1967
0: Oscars? Uh, yes, it would have been the 60 which is why 66 doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Like, these aren't the movies I looked up earlier when researching. <laughs> so it lost to... It was um. a man of all... For all seasons, basically, like, stormed the Oscars and won so much... So much came out of A Man for All Seasons, which I honestly can't even tell you what the hell that movie is about.
1: Wait, that was the 67
0: Oscars? Yeah, 67 Oscars. A Man.
1: Oh, okay. No, you're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah, God. I somehow fucked up looking up the awards, too. Well, there you go. But I feel like that's that's true today. The best movie does not often win. Yep.
0: But uh, yeah, you heard it here. Definitely recommend checking this one out. It's, uh, I I definitely think it's worth a watch.
1: Absolutely. Before we get out of here, do you want to uh, spin the wheel of destiny?
0: Uh, I can spin the wheel of destiny. Do we know what our our next movies or what our next trilogy is going to be?
1: Uh, I don't know if you're acting right now, but uh, Brett, I believe
0: we do. Okay. I I wasn't sure if we wanted to reveal it. Do you want to? While I'm getting the. The generator of oh you know you what, what? No. no 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 it's sorry yeah.
1: guys they don't get to figure no oh well
0: wow. this is what you're gonna do I'm gonna have to cut all this out that's cute
1: yeah yeah just forget it no next week we're gonna review Reminiscence <laughs> we won't spoil the trilogy that it's a part of we'll 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 introduce that next week what are, but let's at least give them that
0: what are we gonna call that blockbuster or Oscar bait <laughs> um, if you had to choose one. I'd say it's probably Blockbuster. All right. So you have to turn it into... Nope. All right. You have to turn it into horror. You got miniseries. I wasn't going to make you do miniseries two weeks in a row.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I haven't had an opportunity to do horror yet, so I'm excited about that. You
0: have to turn it into horror. I have to turn it into family-friendly.
1: That's the one I wanted to avoid, so thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, great. I was hoping for comedy because I was really going to enjoy probably ripping it apart. Um But you know, it's fine. Fam- fam- family friendly will be great. I'll turn a sci-fi memory detective movie into a family friendly affair. It's fine, I can do it. You know? If I can do you've, it to Leon the Professional, I can fucking do it to reminiscent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get out of here, Brett, I just wanted to let you know. I was born with a powerful passion to create, and I can't write, I can't paint, I can't make up a song, so I podcast. Absolutely, Um, and I think I I tipped my hand a little bit um, in mentioning uh, that—God damn it, cut this part out, hold on.